Paracast, with your hosts Gene Steinberg and David Bietley. You know, as we're recording this episode, there's a story on the wires about a problem to the computer system that processes flight plans. So, of course, it messes up the entire air traffic control center system around the U.S. Of course, we all remember the movie Day the Earth Stood Still. Now, I'm not talking about the remake with Keanu Reeves that I'm worried about. I'm talking about the original one with Michael Rennie, where the aliens were able to stop all electricity around the world, except for such things as airborne traffic or hospitals. So the aliens were maybe part being nice, except, of course, they also threatened to destroy the Earth. But the point of it being that the aliens in that movie had the power to disrupt things on Earth. And that takes us to a book, recent book out from Robert Hastings called UFOs and Nukes, Extraordinary Encounters at Nuclear Weapons Sites. Now, there's some pretty frightening aspects to this encounter that we're going to go into on this episode. So stay with us. It's going to be a very interesting ride. But first, Robert, we always like to ask this question. How did you get attracted to the UFO mystery and get involved in this kind of research? Well, thank you for having me on today. Uh, my father was career Air Force. In 1966, he was stationed at Malmstrom Air Force Base, Montana. Some of your listeners will immediately recognize that name. Uh, in March of the following year, 1967, apparently a number of nuclear missiles, ICBMs, simultaneously went down, malfunctioned, just as UFOs were reported in their vicinity. Now, I was a junior in high school at the time. However, three nights a week, I worked at the Malmstrom Air Force Base Air Traffic Control Tower as a custodian. I just, you know, pushed a broom and emptied trash cans. However, one of the rooms I cleaned was called RAPCON, which is Radar Approach Control, uh, where all the FAA and um, Air Force air traffic controllers were bringing aircraft into the base and so on. And over the course of several months, I made the acquaintance of one air, air traffic controller who during his break times was quite gracious and uh, answered a lot of my questions about radar theory and so on and so forth. In any case, one night in March of 67, I reconstructed it to be the latter part of the month, but I don't know the exact date. Uh, he just sort of nonchalantly mentioned, uh, motioned me over to his scope and showed me that he was tracking five targets, which he referred to as either UFOs or unknowns or something to that effect. And it was clear to me he was talking about UFOs. And and I asked a couple of questions. He would only say that two interceptors had been launched to investigate. Uh, however, seconds later, he took on a whole new, uh, different business-like tone and kind of waved me off and said, come back and clean later. You know, we've got a situation here. When I attempted to bring up that uh, incident with him later in the week, he just did not want to talk about it at all. So it was clear to me something was going on. Um, I mentioned all of this to my father. He worked in what was called the SAGE building where there were, again, uh, radar personnel, I should say, involved with the NORAD system. Um, basically, their, their job at the SAGE building was to protect North American airspace from Soviet aircraft and missiles. In any case, um, I mentioned the incident at the air traffic control tower to my dad. Unbeknownst to me, he made a couple of inquiries and just told me very briefly that uh, there, there were uh, indications that there were Soviet surveillance aircraft flying around Malmstrom's airspace. And 
I knew that was a bogus explanation because the air traffic controller told me these objects were clustered together and hovering clearly if uh, if the Soviets were capable of getting surveillance aircraft that far into American airspace over Montana, they wouldn't have sent five spy planes and they wouldn't be clustered together and they wouldn't be hovering. So, you know, it was a pretty bogus story Mm -hmm. even as a a 16-year-old. I I realized that. Well, what interestingly developed, perhaps a week or two later, my dad just nonchalantly mentioned that he had heard other rumors that these were bona fide UFOs that were in fact maneuvering around uh, the nuclear missile sites. And that's all he really said. So that sort of sparked my interest. And by the early 70s, uh, researcher Raymond Fowler uh, wrote a book in which he mentioned uh, that there were sightings of UFOs around Malmstrom's nuclear missile sites. So that kicked off my interviewing retired, former and retired military people to see how many people might know about this, how many incidents had occurred, and so on and so forth. And uh, that one thing led to another. Um, by 1981, I felt I had enough data to go on the college lecture circuit and tell people basically this is real, this is going on, and this is being covered up. I think the American public deserves the facts. And so that's how it kicked off for me. Robert, as you went around and spoke about this topic publicly, did you get any pressure on uh, from from the military to perhaps not talk about this topic? Well, yes, uh, and I can't say the military per se. I suspect it was more mm-hmm. one of the intelligence agencies. You know, the thing about uh, what I'm about to say is I can't prove anything um, in terms of who's involved and, and whether it went on. If there were an attorney who was willing to go to bat for me and file some Freedom of Information requests and uh, put the fire to, to the feet of some of the agencies like the NSA and the CIA, I suspect I could get some paperwork on who has been monkeying around with my telephone and so on. But. Mm. What happened, uh, there was a researcher named Todd Zeckel, who is now deceased. Todd was involved in the late 70s with the first successful lawsuit against the CIA to get documents released on UFOs. He I knew I, Todd Zeckel casually, by the way. Okay. So uh, that brings back a lot of memories. Todd was a mixed bag. If you, if you knew Todd, you right. knew that. Uh, He was a two-edged sword for sure, but he earned my respect because he basically went full out to try to get the CIA to, um, you know, cough up what they had in terms of documents. In any case, by I went out on the lecture circuit in September of '81, and by the spring of '82, Todd and I were contacting each other regularly by telephone to share leads. Uh, people I talked to, military guys, I would give that information to Todd, and he would share some of his information with me. Well, we started having lots of telephone problems that only occurred when he and I would talk to each other. Um, the phone would constantly be interrupted, the conversation, or this series of high-pitched tones would suddenly shriek out you know, at high volume. And none of this occurred at any other time when, except when he, he and I were talking. So it was clear to us that somebody was just letting us know that they were keeping an eye on our activities. And uh, there have been uh, some other... Uh, a great deal of incidents. Uh, I was on Larry King about a month ago, and uh, since then I've been posting excerpts from my book on the web. Uh, one of them's called Like a Diamond in the Sky. The other one's called Launch in Progress, and I strongly recommend your listeners go ahead and Google those. And anyway, uh, the activity that I've just described that occurred on and off over the last 
25 years or so has really picked up significantly since my appearance on Larry King and since I've been posting these uh, very sensitive incidents on the Internet. So somebody's still out there, still keeping an eye on me and uh, just wanting to let me know that they know. Hmm. But that hasn't really stopped you, obviously, from obviously talking not. about the topic. Yeah, no, we saw you on uh, on the Larry King show and quote Bill Clinton, I feel your pain. Uh, it, it, it's very frustrating to see how the topic is treated in the mainstream. I mean, talk to us a little bit about that appearance, Robert. How did that come to, to pass? And I know that you brought some, some very strong witnesses to the show with you. Tell us a little bit about that, please. You've probably heard about the uh, extensive UFO activity that occurred last January in Texas near the town of Stevensville. Absolutely, um, sure. And when I read about that, I called, as I said, I've been on the college lecture circuit um, since 81, so I called the school there, which is Tarleton State University, and said, you know, I'm a, I'm a lecturer, and given the topic uh, of the day down there, would you be interested in having me in? So they invited me in, and as I was, I sent out press releases about about the program and my background and so on. And as I was driving into town to do the lecture, Larry King's producers called me and said, you know, we heard you're there. We have a remote set up. Can you appear tonight? Well, I couldn't because of the show, the uh, program. It would have conflicted. So um, over the last six or seven months, they were after me to get on. They asked me on another occasion, and I wasn't able to comply. So we finally picked a date in July where I would be able to appear. And uh, I just told them at the outset, you know, I'm reporting other people's stories. This would be a much stronger program if you would allow me to have on two or three of the original sources, uh, persons now retired or who have left the Air Force who were involved directly in these incidents. So they agreed. They uh, gave me a free reign. So I invited on Bob Salas. Bob Salas was a Minuteman missile launch officer at Malmstrom Air Force Base when my dad was there. He was one of the launch officers involved in one of the, the full-flight shutdowns. The way the Minuteman missile system works is you have an underground launch uh, control capsule or launch, launch control facility, which is connected to 10 separate missile sites. He and his commander were down underground, and uh, were, you know, everything was normal, and they suddenly got a frantic call from one of their guards topside saying there's a UFO hovering right outside the gate. And uh, before Salas could even, you know, he told me he thought it was a joke. He thought this was a bad joke. Sure. It was a, yeah. he, he was about to chastise, you know, the the, the security policeman up, up at ground level. And before he could even get any response out on his missile readiness display panel, uh, his missiles started dropping offline one after the other. In other words, they were malfunctioning and were uh, not launchable. Salas has now said that uh, he and his commander, a man named Fred Mywald, were immediately whisked back to Malmstrom by helicopter, were debriefed by OSI, Office of Special Investigations agents, told never to discuss this incident again, even among themselves. Uh, Salas did, however, subsequently talk to some of the guards who were involved in the incident, and they said that this object was saucer-shaped, was glowing bright orange, and was silently hovering just above the, the gates surrounding the missile site uh, when the missiles went down. It's now known through the research of, of a man named Jim Klotz, who is an excellent researcher who's worked with Bob over the years uh, trying to reconstruct this story, that two weeks earlier, or at least some number of days earlier, uh, 
before this incident that Bob Salas was involved in, there was an identical incident at another missile flight where all 10 missiles dropped offline just as um, UFOs were being reported in the area. So he was one of the people on with me. Um, I well, now, Robert, sure. hold on for a second. You just said something, and it made me think, and correct me if I heard this wrong, you said at the at the incident the month before, ten missiles were taken down, and is it our understanding that ten missiles were taken down at Maelstrom as well? I may have misspoken, but what I was trying to say was, um, Jim Klotz and Bob Salas, uh, based on their research after the fact, were able to pinpoint within the month of March. Uh, Bob was a, at a flight called Oscar Flight, where he controlled ten missiles, Oscar two, three, four, five, and so on. And that apparently occurred mid to late March. However, at the time uh, this was occurring, Bob and his command were told that there was an identical incident at another flight. But it took a number of years in the 1990s uh, for Klotz and Salas to find out what that was all about. And it turned out that there was another incident at Echo Flight at Malmstrom. So documents have been declassified, which uh, the Air Force said, yes, the missiles went down at Echo Flight on March 16th, 1967, but no UFOs were involved. Of course, they'd they, say that, wouldn't they? Uh, they do. Uh, Jim Klotz, interestingly enough, located the unit historian he's called for the missile wing at Malmstrom, the 341st missile wing. His name's David Gamble, and uh, David Gamble, who wrote the unit history, which basically is the official history of uh, the, the missile wing for a given period of time, told Jim Klotz 10 years ago that when he heard rumors about UFO involvement with the shutdowns, uh, he wrote that into his history, and he said that his superiors censored that, edited it out. And uh, the, the version that's published and is now online basically says that, that rumors of UFO involvement were disproven. Hi, this is Timothy Green Beckley, otherwise known as Mr. UFO, reporting live for the Conspiracy Journal. And we have a special offer for the listeners of the Paracast. Want to receive our publications for free? Conspiracy Journal and Bizarre Bizarre sent to you via snail mail. And all you have to do is email me at MrUFO at WebTV.net. That's MRUFO at WebTV.net. And we'll send you two of the most exciting publications. But we do need your actual address because these are physical publications. And you'll enjoy all the latest articles by some of the leading researchers in the field, as well as up-to-date information on the latest book and videos and it's all for free or drop us a line mr ufo at webtv.net we want to hear from you if you have a comment or question about the paracast send it to news at theparacast.com that's news at theparacast.com and don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and Gene and David. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. We're talking to Robert Hastings, and he is author of a book called UFOs and Nukes, Extraordinary Encounters at Nuclear Weapon Sites. In terms of this, we're assuming here that 
or speculating perhaps that these craft somehow disable temporarily these nuclear weapons. Is that very much akin to the so-called electromagnetic phenomenon connected with UFO sightings where car ignitions also fail? In my view, we're, we're dealing with a premeditated disruption. In other words, there is uh, an act uh, demonstration provided by those within the UFO that they have the ability to shut down our nuclear missiles. Uh, it's different than the ignition, car ignition cases that you mentioned. What most of the data say is that according to the, the former launch officers and targeting personnel and missile maintenance personnel who were involved with picking up the pieces, in other words, bringing the missiles back online, uh, almost all of them say that these various failures at not only Malmstrom but other bases in my book, I mentioned that this has gone on at different bases uh, over the years on a number of occasions. Uh, what seems to be involved are what are called GNC failures, guidance and control failures. In other words, the missiles could be launched, their engines would function, but um, I, I mean the, the missile hardware would work, but they were, their guidance systems would not allow the, the warheads to hit their targets. So down in the launch capsule, they're getting a launch no-go indicator because the guidance and control systems have failed. I have talked to uh, persons at F.E. Warren Air Force Base in Cheyenne, Wyoming, who say that there were incidents similar to this uh, in the early 70s, 73, 74, in which the, the circulating rumor within the missile squadron was that target tapes in the warhead were either erased or altered. In other words, there was not really a hardware failure like up at Malmstrom. Uh, rather, it was a software failure whereby yeah. uh, the, the encoded information within the warhead that would have directed it to its target it was either scrambled or erased. Uh, so there's variations on this guidance failure uh, issue. Um, like an but, alien uh, computer virus. Uh, whatever. Uh, you know, I think it's it's important to point out that, um, and I've done this in, in my lectures all around the country, uh, we know the missiles were disrupted precisely at a time that the objects, the UFOs, were in their vicinity, either the missile sites themselves or at the launch control facilities. That's very well established at several different bases. Now, uh, the question is whether the UFO itself as a mechanical device is, is creating some sort of field effect which is inadvertently disrupting these missiles or on the other hand is this as i believe and most of all of my sources believe uh, a premeditated act this is somebody within the ufo demonstrating that they can disrupt our nuclear missiles functionality uh, now wasn't so there an incident at least one incident that you talk about where the supposed ufos actually activated missiles I'm glad you mentioned that. That's that's probably the most frightening incident that I'm aware of. Briefly, uh, a former launch officer named David Schur, and he's mentioned in my book. He's also mentioned in the online excerpts that anyone can now access. Go to Launch in Progress. My, you know, Google my name and Launch in Progress, and you'll see David Schur's two-page story. He told me that he was at Minot Air Force Base in North Dakota in the mid-60s. And one night they got a, they have a, a radio system that links all the launch capsules together called the primary alert system, uh, PAS. And over this radio system they were getting reports from various, uh, launch capsules that this, this UFO, a bright object was, 
moving from missile site to missile site. It would hover over a missile and then zip off very quickly and hover over the next one and so on and so forth. And it moved from flight to flight to flight, from one group of 10 missiles to the next group to the next group. And David Shore said that when he was in what's called echo flight, and he said that uh, when the calls they got from their own guards saying it's over our flight now, moving from missile to missile, he said as it moved from each missile down in the launch control capsule, they got indicators that the missile was preparing to launch. Now, not only is this frightening, uh, it, it's, it's unlike the other reports that we've gotten uh, that Jim Klotz and I and others who researched this, all the other cases seem to involve a disruption of the missile's functionality. According to David Shure at Minot in the mid-60s on this one night, rather than the missiles going being knocked offline, somehow the launch sequence was actually activated. And he said both he and his commander, launch commander, and uh, other personnel there had to disrupt, manually disrupt or inhibit the launch. Otherwise, theoretically, these particular missiles would have been activated and, you know, Flown out, flown off. Would they now, have been activated and flown towards the Soviet Union? Is that where they were aimed? Or well, that's that's. You'll see if you read what Shure told me. He said theoretically, you know, when you see that launch activation or launch in progress button lit, that means if you you know if it's an unauthorized launch, you have to immediately hit this inhibit switch. And he said we were getting all sorts of spurious indicators. That was not the only light that was lit. So he told me, I don't really know, you know, in that situation whether the missiles would have actually taken off, but um, because there were other, uh, you know, indications of various issues involved that they were seen displayed on their panel. So he said, theoretically, though, if that launch button is uh, lit, it means the missile's preparing to launch unless you inhibit it. Now, what I say in my book, and um, it's very important, important to note, this information was given to me in 2007, and Shore told me that he waited five years after he learned about me and my research before he felt that he should go ahead and talk about this. And frankly, uh, if you look at the tape of the Larry King show, uh, he is the person I'm alluding to when I say um, I tried to get another launch officer on, and he felt he said too much right. and declined. That was David Shure. Um, now, this, again, was information provided to me about a year ago. However, in 1994, uh, the ABC television network used to have a program called Prime Time Live. Mm -hmm. uh, it had Diane Sawyer and so on hosting it. Uh, in any case, uh, one of their chief reporters was a man named David Ensor, who later went on to be CNN's uh, chief national security affairs correspondent. Uh, while he was with Primetime Live, ABC News, in 1994, he went to the former Soviet Union and interviewed a number of uh, retired Soviet Army officers regarding UFO incidents in the Soviet Union. Two of the people he interviewed actually were retired officers who told him that in the Soviet Ukraine uh, in October of 1982, there was an incident where a UFO was sighted for hours hovering near a nuclear missile base. But it was such an, at such an altitude that Soviet interceptors and even anti-aircraft missiles couldn't reach it. Uh, but according to these officers, hundreds of people saw this object in a nearby village. They described it as uh, a giant flying saucer, uh, metallic, uh, no, no windows or portholes. 
it just played around in the airspace above this missile base and this nearby village for hours. Well, at some point during this incident, according to these retired officers, down in one of the Soviet launch capsules, there was actually an activation, an unauthorized activation of their missiles. And for 15 seconds, the missiles were pre preparing to launch. Um, wow. Now, now what, what I tend to think, in my opinion, based on 35 years of research, is that, again, I believe this is a premeditated, deliberate act, but I really don't think that whoever's aboard the UFO is attempting to launch nuclear missiles. I think they're rather just trying to scare the hell out of us and the Russians. Uh, I think they know that uh, we either have the ability to disrupt the launch or they themselves would probably disrupt the launch at some point. According to the Russian officers, uh, this activation, this anomaly, ceased after 15 seconds of its own accord. You know, they didn't apparently inhibit it, or at least based on their uh, remarks to ABC that they, they, you know, it just sort of started and then stopped itself. So I'm inclined to think that whoever's in the UFOs are in fact saying, don't mess with nukes, you know, you're, you're playing with fire, you're going to destroy your civilization and your planet, get rid of nukes. I think that's the message being sent. Uh, Seventy-five percent of the people I've interviewed over the years, nearly a hundred former launch officers, targeting officers, and so on and so forth, so forth, they believe that too. They agree with me. They think that somebody from some other place is here, uh, who they are, where they're from, how they get here, big unknown answers, but whatever, they are up to one of the things involves them trying to uh, send us a very strong message, a uh, heavy hint, uh, as I say in my book, uh, to both Washington and Moscow that nuclear weapons could potentially be the downfall of mankind and the whole planet. Robert, if we track this historically, uh, do we find that UFOs had a presence, for example, when the work circling the Manhattan Project was going on, were they seeing UFOs? I, I am aware of a single newspaper article in during World War II from Oak Ridge, which was in Tennessee, one of the other nuclear uh, missile material production plants. Mm -hmm. Apparently, there was a newspaper article that's been uh, published by a researcher named Lauren Gross, uh, indicating that on some date in 1944, this huge cylindrical-shaped object was sighted by a large number of people at the Oak Ridge plant. That's an interesting development in my view. I have uh, interviewed a number of people who uh, were in New Mexico in the 40s during the war, and to my knowledge, uh, sightings of UFOs really did not pick up until the end of World War II. Mm. Um, I've attempted to ascertain whether anyone, uh, you know, in the Hiroshima and Nagasaki missions saw UFOs. I actually yeah. wrote to Paul, Paul Tibbetts, who, Paul Tibbetts was the pilot of the Enola Gay who dropped the bomb right. on Hiroshima. And I just sent him an email saying, you know, did you ever see anything unusual, both on that mission and uh, after the war? And he said, I have, I have nothing to share on UFOs, which could be interpreted <laughs> a number of ways. But um, bottom line is I'm unaware of any sightings in Japan at Nagasaki and Hiroshima. I'm unaware of any sightings actually at the first few bomb blasts, the ones uh, in 1946 and 47, uh, 48, I believe, in the South Pacific, where we fired off the first post-war nuclear tests, uh, right. atomic tests. Right. 
Uh, I've interviewed a number of veterans. No one's reported any UFOs. However, by 1952, there uh, there were definitely UFOs in the vicinity of the tests of the first hydrogen bomb. I've got veterans on record saying that they saw them uh, in, in the vicinity. So. By 1952, if not earlier, uh, these objects were beginning to see it, be seen around our test sites, not only in the Pacific, but in Nevada. I've got two whole chapters devoted to those sightings in my book. And these are, you know, the testimony of veterans who were there at the time of the test. This is not, you know, stuff that I'm just pulling out of the air. Hey, neighbors, the easiest online meeting service, GoToMeeting, just got easier. If you haven't tried GoToMeeting, now's the time, because the new version of GoToMeeting has fully integrated voice over IP. With this new total audio feature, you have more audio options by being able to conference through a phone or the web, save time, save money, and be more efficient. Hold an online meeting with GoToMeeting. Try GoToMeeting free for 30 days. Visit GoToMeeting.com slash podcasts. That's GoToMeeting.com slash podcasts for a free trial. Airy Radio, opening the door to the unknown. Download episodes of Erie Radio directly from iTunes or visit their website at www.erieradio.com. Brain Tonic, the smart antidote to head fog. The world's first organic botanical-based caffeine-free think drink designed for mental focus and clarity. Tastes great, super safe, with no caffeine crash. Just great fuel for your cranium. No chemical preservatives, no sugar, no fake anything. Check it out at www.maxsales.com slash tonic. That's spelled with a T-O-N-I-Q. That's www.maxsales.com slash tonic. Again, the spelling T-O-N-I-Q. Check it out today. Before we pull anything else out of the air on the Paracast, we're talking to Robert Hastings. He is author of UFOs and Nukes, Extraordinary Encounters at Nuclear Weapon Sites. Now, I'm going to kind of move to a totally different discussion here about the same thing, and that is, have you formed any conclusions about the origin of UFOs, or are you basically cataloging these events and saying, you know, this is weird, let's figure out what's going on? It's a combination of the two, actually. Um, when I speak publicly and in my book, I try to present things first at the most basic level, the nuts and bolts is what I call it, where you have raw data citing reports by veterans of UFO activity at nuclear missile sites or nuclear bomb storage areas or nuclear test areas and just let the witnesses speak for themselves, describe what occurred. But I also, in my book and in my lectures, I also feel that, you know, we, there's enough data now to be able to address it in terms of hypothesizing or theorizing about what it is and what it represents. I have, for many years now, concluded that the technology involved is so vastly superior to anything made on Earth, not only in the late 40s but even today, that we are dealing with uh, visitation by one or more races from other worlds. I think if you look at the, not the abduction cases, which are controversial for a number of reasons, but 
just the reports of alien beings standing standing next to landed UFOs or being sighted through the windows of low flying UFOs. If you look at the the bulk of those reports from the 50s to the present day from credible sources like policemen and you know other people who really are not going to go out on a limb and make uh, up some wild tale you're you're dealing with a series of descriptions uh they're all variations on a theme a humanoid figure meaning a head on a trunk two arms two legs two forward facing eyes um, but beyond that basic, you know, morphology, you've got a wide variation in terms of heights, uh, skin colorings, facial features, and so on. So to me, that suggests, and again, these are beings who are sighted on the ground, walking around, or standing next to a landed UFO. Um, I think one can reasonably infer if any of these cases, uh, these reports have merit, as I believe they do, we're dealing with visitation by probably a number of races from other places who uh, have mastered interstellar travel and are here, and who knows how long they've been here, who knows what their agenda is. Um, one presumes that if you have multiple races, you might have multiple agendas. Uh, some of them may overlap, some may not. Uh, some of these beings may just be passing through from point A to point B. This is a pit stop for them. On the other hand, you may have another race who's been engaged in long-term surveillance, just as our anthropologists would study a, a South Sea culture on a distant island. Um, or you may have uh, some number of races that are actively trying to interfere with certain aspects of our of our civilization, uh, specifically nuclear weapons and, and potential nuclear warfare. Strictly speculation here, because we always like to look at motivations. Why would the aliens care about our nuclear weapons unless they had some kind of stake in the outcome? I think that's a fair question. You know, what I've told people, you know, a number of people who listen to my thesis and look at my data say, oh, he's saying that the aliens are here to save us from ourselves. Well, that's one possibility. I also say, you know, we don't know that for sure. I doubt if even people in the Pentagon and the CIA know for sure. But it's conceivable that some race wants to conquer Earth and they don't want to inherit a radioactive polluted planet. And so conceivably one might hypothesize that they're trying to disrupt our plans for nuclear war uh, so they can, you know, inherit, take over and have a nice, reasonably nice environment. Now, I do not for a second think that that's what's going on, but in the realm of possibility, if one is to honestly look at all the potentialities, there's just not enough data in the public domain and probably not mm -hmm. even in, in Washington to, to say for sure that, you know, these guys are here to save us from ourselves, although I believe that is a reasonable hypothesis based on the available data. Let's go back to uh, UFOs and the nuclear question, Robert. Um, I remember during uh, the first Gulf War, uh, Norman Schwarzkopf was uh, addressing a press conference, and somebody asked him about presence of submarines in the in the Mediterranean Ocean. And uh, Schwarzkopf's response was, "We don't talk about submarines." It was very very direct. Now we know that submarines are a major launch platform for nuclear weapons. In your research, have you discovered any? Sightings of USOs. Have we heard of reports of UFOs trailing or being seen underwater near nuclear submarines? Have you been able to gather any information along those lines? 
Approximately 10 years ago, um, I sort of shifted my research for several months toward the question of naval-related sightings and uh, made a number of inquiries of veterans, you know, websites devoted to veterans for this submarine or that submarine or this mm -hmm. naval squadron or, or the other. And um, I came up across this brick wall. Basically, submariners are very tight-lipped, I found. Um, you know, they were very suspicious, suspicious of who I was and why I was asking these questions. Right. So long story short, I got nowhere quick with those guys. Um, I am aware of a couple of reports that suggest that there are UFOs in the air uh, flying around nuclear submarines that have come up to surface level. Uh, one report was mentioned by Barry Greenwood in an excellent book called The UFO Cover-Up. It was initially called Clear Intent. It's been out of print for years and years, but you could find it uh, in an out-of-print bookshop or uh, website. Clear Intent and re later renamed The UFO Cover-Up. In any case, Barry Greenwood talks <laughs> about an incident, I believe, in 73 uh, with the USS Abraham Lincoln uh, was was on the surface and uh, allegedly this UFO circled the uh, the submarine and there were electronic problems. I have no way of vouching that. I just know it was reported. Um, mm -hmm. I've also found, however, um, online another story, and I can't pull the specifics off my top of my head, but there's another story that purports to be a similar incident involving another nuclear sub, and um, I had a, a naval veteran check into that for me and he said that everything about the story was wrong the home port of the craft the number of the craft mm. uh etc cetera, etc cetera. so apparently this was a bogus uh a fraudulent a hoax uh put online trying to intimate that there was this incident involving a ufo near nukes nuclear sub i will say and in my book i have a whole chapter devoted to this since the mid-90s there have been many, many sightings up in Washington State at what is essentially the Bangor uh, Naval Sub Base, which is west of Seattle. Uh, Peter Davenport, who directs the uh, National UFO Reporting yeah. website, mm -hmm. uh, over the years has put up several dozen sighting reports from that area where people are seeing UFOs uh, around the Bangor Nuclear Sub Base. That is the western base for nuclear submarines in the U.S. Navy. The eastern base is called Kings Bay, which is uh, on the Georgia-Florida border, uh, and there have been reports there as well, as I mentioned in my book. But one, point, one report in particular um, from, I want to say, 1998, but I, I'm just pulling that off the top of my head. In the late 90s, uh, a person living near the Bangor base saw this clearly disc-shaped objects swoop down out of the sky and fly at very low altitude directly over the center of the Bangor base. And based, uh, I, interv I interviewed that guy, and he, uh, based on his description and the report that Peter Davenport had put online, it was clear that this object was flying from north to south directly over the nuclear weapons storage area on the base. There are a series of hardened uh, bunkers that run in this long row. I think it's about two miles in length, if I'm not mistaken. And based on the witness's description, mm. this object was clearly flying north to south directly over these uh, nuclear weapons storage bunkers. 
So that activity has been going on and continues to go on. The latest uh, report, I believe, from the Bangor base was from 2006. So this isn't ancient history we're talking about. Yeah, it's pretty contemporary stuff. Speaking of ancient history, one thing you mentioned on your site at ufohastings.com, and we have a link to that on your name at the Paracast.com website, is that back to Roswell, New Mexico, and we keep saying let's not cover Roswell anymore, but then something happens. So let's mention in passing that the Roswell Army Airfield was home to the world's only atomic bomber squadron back in the late 1940s, the 509th Bomb Group. So Isn't that interesting? Fascinating. <laughs> Yeah, I think that, I think that's not coincidental, in my opinion. I'll tell you uh, one story from Roswell that you haven't heard. It's in my book, but I haven't put it up on the web or anything. Probably about 1991, I was introduced to a man named Chester Lytle, Chet Lytle, who was involved with the Manhattan Project. He actually helped manufacture some of the hardware components used on the first detonation of the atomic bomb down in, in the deserts of New Mexico. Uh, in any case, after the war, he had a number of contracts with the Defense Department, the CIA, and other agencies, the uh, Department of Energy, uh, actually the Atomic Energy Commission at the time, to do various uh, contracting for nuclear weapons-related activities. Chad Lytle was introduced to me by Kevin Randall, who was a leading Roswell researcher, and Don Schmidt at the time they were working together. Uh, we were all at a dinner one night, and Chet Lytle leaned over to me and said sort of quietly, I'm aware of a number of incidents involving UFOs at uh, nuclear weapons sites. And, you know, I, my eyes bugged out, and uh, I tried to pursue it, and I don't know if I was too eager, but he immediately backed off and wouldn't say anything more. Well, I pestered the poor man for almost a decade, for about eight years, I think it was. and. He finally agreed to sit down and talk with me, and so I taped him for an hour and a half in his office in Albuquerque. Among the number of incidents he told me involving uh, UFOs being sighted at the Nevada test site when they were firing off nuclear weapons, atomic weapons, in the early 50s, he also mentioned out of the blue that he was personal friends with Colonel William Blanchard, the base commander at Roswell mm -hmm. at the time of the Roswell incident. Uh, in the early 50s, Blanchard was um, part of his responsibilities. I have his title and his command and everything in my book. I don't have it, again, off the top of my head. But General Blanchard in the early 50s was uh, basically in charge of organizing frontline atomic bomber bases, which were then stationed up in Alaska, uh, based in Alaska. So that was the shortest possible distance to the Western Soviet Union. Uh, Chet Lytle was then working for the Atomic Energy Commission, and Chet told me that one day in February of 1953, uh, he was up there doing his work at uh, Eelson Air Force Base in Alaska. Uh, General Blanchard was there. They crossed paths. They had dinner together and so on. Long story short, Chet Lytle had to get back to Chicago, and Blanchard uh, offered to fly him on a military aircraft. And so while they're flying back to Chicago, uh, Blanchard suddenly starts talking about the Roswell incident, according to Chet Lytle. And Chet said that Blanchard told him point blank that that was an alien spacecraft that was recovered and that it was, in fact, sent to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. And at that point, I just kind of stopped the conversation, and, and I asked him to repeat everything he had said, so I clearly understood what he was saying, and that was precisely what he was telling me in no uncertain terms. He said, in fact, that he later worked. He had an office at Wright-Pat, again, involved with nuclear weapons stockpiling, 
uh, and was aware of activities going on at one of the hangars at Wright-Patterson, uh, which allegedly contained debris from the Roswell object. So, you know, this is not verifiable information, but what we have here is uh, an eminent uh, government administrator. He, again, he was involved in the Manhattan Project. He did. He was an administrator for the Atomic Energy Commission. He had all these top-secret clearances, and he, before he passed away about uh, 2004, he, he mentioned to me that he had it from Blanchard's own lips that the Roswell object was a spacecraft. Bodies had been recovered, and, uh, and the debris and the bodies were sent to Wright-Patterson. I mentioned that in the book, for what it's worth. What and, you're saying uh, is just nothing that you can actually confirm. Fate Magazine is proud to be celebrating its 60th anniversary and its 700th issue. That's 60 years of bringing you true reports of the strange and unknown. Fate brings you the latest on all aspects of the paranormal, like angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, and much, much more. It's bigger and better than ever. Subscribe now by calling 1-800-728-2730 or online at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. We can confirm that Robert Hastings joins us this week on the Paracast. He's author of UFOs and Nukes, Extraordinary Encounters at Nuclear Weapons Sites. This is available only on your site right now, right? That's correct. We've heard so many stories about people who heard this from somebody, who heard this from somebody, and... A lot of times we kind of look at it and say, you know what, at this stage of the game, because most of the key witnesses, assuming there were witnesses who could be key to this entire event, because of the fact that they're no longer with us or very, very old, we'll never get to the bottom of it. So we kind of put Roswell more on the back burner these days. Well, I, I agree with all of that, which is why I gave the large setup, the big setup to Chet Lytle's comments because of his highly credible background and so forth. But again, um, you know, if that conversation took place on that aircraft flying from Alaska to Chicago, the two people who were involved are both deceased, Blanchard and Lytle. Um, so I, I would simply point out that Lytle, you know, after he initially made this comment to me in 1990 or 91, uh, he was just highly reluctant to, to pursue that further, and uh, I'm, I'm quite puzzled as to why he actually finally agreed to sit down with me. But in 1998, I believe it was, I did have this conversation with him. I have his taped remarks, and that is exactly what he told me. Now, Robert, now Lytle didn't tell us to anybody else, to your knowledge? Um, I've asked Kevin Randall that, and Kevin said that he did not mention that to them. But uh, I was just about to say, a couple of years later, I had some follow-up questions for Lytle, and I called him up and see, to see if he'd be willing to you know, have me back to his office to answer the questions, and he was highly reluctant. He finally agreed very reluctantly. I got down there. I started to clip this microphone to his uh, lapel, and he said, uh, we can't tape this. And I reminded him that previously he let me tape him for an hour and a half. 
and he let out this big sigh and started drumming the, the desktop with his fingers and then finally said, uh, after you were here, I was paid a visit. And uh, he said, I'm not going to tell you by who or where, who they work for, but they basically wanted to know why I was talking to you and Don Schmidt. And given that Don Schmidt is a Roswell researcher, I was assuming that the remarks that he had made to me was probably discussing with Don Schmidt as well. Now, that's speculation on my part. But in any case, according to Lytle, uh, someone had gotten wind of my conversation with him, uh, either by telephone taps or some other manner, and had paid him a visit and warned him basically not to talk with me again. And finally, Lytle said, uh, I've spent decades building up my business here. My son now runs it, and I just don't want to create problems. Uh, he still has contracts, his company now run by his son with the various uh, governmental groups. So. He was telling me point blank that, you know, somebody had leaned on him. Uh, and I mention all of this in my book as well. So um, if I had heard it from someone who I didn't know well, whose credentials really were not a matter of record, you know, I would take that more with a grain of salt. But given his background uh, and his involvement with all of these projects from the Manhattan Project on, uh, I'm pretty sure this guy would not go out of the way to make up stories about flying saucers. Um, he, he was in the thick of the action for a number of years and he in fact mentioned seeing a UFO or three of them himself at Kirtland Air Force Base in Albuquerque. He said he was watching in the mid-50s uh, one night a bomb, atomic bomb being loaded onto a bomber and he said he couldn't recall whether it was being flown to the Nevada test site or somewhere else to be tested but the bomb loading operation was occurring and he was watching it with a man named Kenner Hertford who was very high up in the Atomic Energy Commission and uh, he said as they were watching this they noticed south of the base there were these three bright lights hovering over the Manzano Mountains and the general went into uh, this General Kenner Hertford, a retired Army General later with the AEC uh, went into a building, tried to find some binoculars, did not find them, but he found a theodolite, which is a technical telescope. Looked at the object without a word. Chet said he handed the theodolite to him and rushed back into the building. Chet looked at the objects, and he said it was a disc-shaped object with a dome. And uh, he was about to move the theodolite to the next object, and before he could, the three of them suddenly raced away south in the mm. southerly direction. So he said uh, he was quite convinced that whoever was aboard those three craft, they were watching, they were monitoring the bomb loading operation. Unfortunately, by the time he got around agreeing to talk to me, uh, Kenner Hertford had died three years earlier, so I was never able to independently corroborate that. Yeah. Uh, however, uh, Don Schmidt, I know, and Kevin Randall did talk to Hertford about UFOs, and I, I can't tell you what the, the, the gist of conversations were, but they were aware of Hertford before I was and had interviewed him. Now, you've covered, of course, the incident in the Soviet Union, also in the U.S., where the UFOs were seen over nuclear weapons installations. Now, we know in this day and age, other countries have nuclear ambitions, Iran and, of course, North Korea. Any reports of excessive UFO activity in those countries? I am aware of reports which I cannot corroborate. I've not investigated them. I've not interviewed any witnesses. But on the Internet, uh, for the last 10 years at least, there have been reports of UFO activity in Pakistan and India. 
which are both nuclear powers, and in fact, there was some potential for uh, mm -hmm. nuclear conflict in 19, yeah. the late 90s. In any case, uh, if one goes online and you know Google Google's UFOs in Pakistan or India, you'll find reports of these objects. In some cases, not too far from. Uh, atomic power plants and so on. Again, I can't vouch for the, you know, truthfulness, the accuracy of those reports, but they are out there. Uh, similarly, there are reports of UFO activity in recent years in Ir Iran, which everyone knows now is apparently has a nuclear programs, which the, the Israelis may or may not bomb any day now, um, according to reports. But the Iranians are apparently. Uh, attempting to get a nuclear bomb program together and so there are those reports um, I just recently got a an email from a man in Poland who is starting to investigate sightings in Poland uh, he said there were during the Cold War era there were uh, Soviet missiles probably tactical missiles uh, that would have been targeted for Western Europe during the Soviet era but there were missile sites in Poland and he's going to start interviewing people who may, you know, who, to see whether there were sightings of UFOs around there. So I suspect, you know, if it's gone on here, if it's gone on in the Soviet Union slash Russia, uh, it's probably gone on worldwide. And uh, it's just getting access to the data, you know, having the wherewithal to contact the people who have uh, the stories to tell is it's an uphill battle. I uh, pretty much focused on just uh, what's been going on here in the United States. Now, you've been focusing, uh, Robert, we've been, the whole discussion has been focused on UFOs seen near nuclear weapons facilities. What about the, uh, I suppose, bigger issue of nuclear power plants? What have you uncovered along those lines? Uh, I have great interest in those cases, but I have not personally uh, had the time uh, or the resources to investigate that. Uh, those sightings, however, again, Peter Davenport uh, of the National UFO Reporting Center has collected reports over the years of sightings at various power plants, atomic power plants around the country. Uh, before we went, we went on the air, we mentioned the Palo Verde power plant west of Phoenix. There have been ongoing sightings there over the last 10 years. Probably the most famous sightings occurred in the late 1980s up on the Hudson River Valley of New York at the Indian Head Power Plant. Uh, there were a number of reports. Uh, I believe it was Philip Ambrogno who mm -hmm. wrote a book, Night Siege, I believe the title of the book was. That's and, correct. Yeah. Uh, he uh, spent a great deal of time investigating, you know, thousands of people were reporting UFOs up and down the Hudson River Valley in the 1980s. And a number of the incidents were uh, clustered around the Indian Head nuclear power plant. I think it's Indian so, Point, actually. And, Indian and, Point, okay. Yeah, it's within spitting distance of where I live, so it's uh, a lot of people around here are always sort of concerned about it because it is right on the river, and uh, it, it, it doesn't seem like it's as well protected as it, as it should be. That's a whole other topic for another show. But, yeah, um, you know, that, that power plant has a lot of people in the, in the area fairly concerned and I, I know that even before I ever knew about Phil's work, I had heard about sightings specifically of craft over that the Indian Point uh, power plant. So, yeah, that, that's something that's been going on for quite a while, apparently. Uh, another incident or alleged incident that is quite intriguing, and again, I've only seen, I haven't investigated it myself, but I've seen reports on the Internet about uh, a UFO sighting after the 
catastrophic explosion at the Chernobyl plant in the Ukraine in April of 86. Really? Uh, there are reports uh, that even, uh, I believe it's TASS, TASS used to be the communist, uh, the Soviet regime's chief newspaper, you know, just lie after lie. However, TASS is still in operation, and they have published articles, I don't, can't tell you the dates, but you can Google them, where apparently uh, engineers, nuclear engineers who went into Chernobyl to uh, monitor radiation levels, subsequently reported that while they were there, I believe the very first night of after the explosion, allegedly they saw this huge amber-colored ball of fire or light hovering above the site. And according to TASS and uh, one other independent story I've seen in a, a Ukrainian newspaper, they state that uh, this object hovered over the site for a few minutes went away or dissipated uh, and the radiation readings suddenly dramatically decreased immediately after the sighting of this object and this was according to the testimony of one of these uh, Soviet nuclear engineers on site monitoring radiation levels. Now again, I can't vouch for any of that but I do know that it's been reported uh, as being a factual account. Do you By hold the way, any credence to the stories from people who claim to be in contact with the occupants of UFOs who give them the nuclear destruction warning of some sort? Um, I've heard those accounts just as we all have. Um, I would simply say in a larger sense, um, I believe that uh, there are some number of abduction reports are bonafide. I think some number of people are being picked up for whatever reason and are having these experiences on board. Um, I do not personally investigate those. I have to rely on the, the work of Bud Hopkins and John Mack of the late John Mack of Harvard University and others who deal with abductions. But uh, in my view, it's probably factual that some number of these things are occurring. Just as every UFO sighting report doesn't mean that it's a bona fide UFO, there are lots of misidentifications and so on. I think. There's certainly a core number of abduction reports that have merit, but there's probably many many others that are, are less certain. Uh, people, for whatever, I'm not necessarily saying hoaxing, although I'm sure that's part of it. People just having experiences they can't account for and perhaps thinking this had something to do with a UFO. So it's, it's hard separating the signal from the noise. But, yes, I am aware of that. Uh, even going back to the 50s, uh, there were reports of people allegedly being taken on board UFOs and being told that they were here to monitor our our nuclear weapons and uh, were war trying to warn mankind. So I know there is this subset of data. Unfortunately, the contactees back in the 50s, not the abduction witnesses, but the contactees, uh, most of your listeners have probably heard about George Adamski and some of the folks back in the 50s who, in my view, just were telling one lie after the other. They came up, came up with all these outlandish tales about flying to Venus and, you know, eating under a tree with an alien on Venus, and Venus is about 800 degrees Fahrenheit. And it was a hot tree. Hot tree, that's right. Burning bush. And, uh, uh, don't go so, there. You know, those kinds of stories, and, and, you know, some of these abductees are saying, you know, yeah, the aliens are here to protect us from ourselves. They're going to intervene if we go to nuclear war. Now, I doubt both stories 
uh, have any merit whatsoever, in my opinion. But they they muddy the water. Certainly, they make the mainstream media and you know scientists and everybody sort of throw the baby out with the bathwater. So some folks have dif- difficulty differentiating between the, that kind of bogus information and the kinds of credible reports that are coming from my former and retired uh, military personnel. Before we do our hourly break here, can you give our listeners a quick pitch for the book? Well, the book's called UFOs and Nukes, Extraordinary Encounters at Nuclear Weapons Sites. It is self-published. It's available only at my website, ufohastings.com. On the website, I also have posted a couple of articles about my research, uh, so if you're interested in that, it's there available free of charge. The book, however, is a culmination of 35 years of research, and uh, I think it would be worth your time to investigate the kinds of reports that I have been getting from these retired Air Force personnel. This is very important information. You know, if nuclear weapons are being monitored and occasionally tampered with by UFO occupants, then clearly this is a major step. Well, we have a link to Robert's site over at theparacast.com. You click on his name, you go to ufohastings.com, where you can learn more about his research, check out his articles, and also buy a copy of the book. We'll be back with Robert Hastings on the other side of the Paracast. Welcome back to the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Vietti. We are back with Robert Hastings. He is author of UFOs and Nukes, Extraordinary Encounters at Nuclear Weapons Sites. And we're exploring a whole range of unusual cases where UFOs have hovered and sometimes done a few things, dirty well, now, tricks, whatever. Now, now here's the thing. Uh, the Chernobyl uh, incident that uh, Robert was just referring to, on ufoevidence.org, there's a little article about this. And uh, I don't know, it doesn't look like it's from TOS. It looks like it's uh, from Pravda. Anyway. Pravda. That's, I, I misspoke. Pravda yeah. is what I... Okay. okay. So the Pravda, article... Pravda was one of the other Soviet uh, newspapers. Right. 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 Correct. So um, in Pravda, apparently, there was an article about uh, a UFO having been, having been seen for hours hovering above the uh, the facility and... This article talks about there being some kind of a uh, crimson beam or light that came down from this onto uh, one of the other reactors. That, and, and so the, the, the prevailing theory is that this thing stopped the situation from, from getting bad. So just FYI, there is the, the uh, translated article on ufoevidence.org. Uh, that's one of the accounts that I've read, and again, yeah. there was an, uh, another one in a Ukrainian newspaper, which I can't pull off the top of my head, but uh, basically the same report. And uh, yeah. I do recall the, you know, the people who were there to monitor the radiation levels said that you know they were at such and such a level, uh, and after this uh, beam of light came down, perhaps I forget the exact sequence. But the next time they checked, checked their instruments, the radiation was much lower. Right. And uh, they're on the record of saying that occurred. You know, something occurs to me from what you said before. You, like many of us, dismiss some of these UFO contactees, especially the ones, of course, where they encounter human aliens or humanoid aliens that look very much like us, that they come here to warn us of the danger of nuclear weapons research and testing. Yet at the same time, these UFOs are indeed involved in trying to do something or even sabotage 
nuclear weapons testing. So wouldn't you think that at some point in time they might contact the inhabitants of this planet, that they're doing this horrible practice, this horrible deed of creating weapons of mass destruction? Wouldn't they not just actively interfere with the tests, but yeah, talk to the occupants? I think that's reasonable to assume. Again, it's a question of separating the signal from the noise. Um, I think, you know, who am I to say that there haven't been such encounters? I haven't investigated them. Even if I did, there'd be no way of proving it empirically. But yes, I would say in the realm of possibility, if indeed whoever are in these craft are monitoring and occasionally tamper, tampering with our nukes, uh, it's not out of the question that they've contacted people from time to time and have express concerns. I'm simply saying that, unfortunately, the, the waters have been muddied by contactees like George Adamski and others who are making these claims that, uh, you know, they, they flew on a spaceship to Venus and, uh, you know, it was just this lush, lovely forest and all this when we now know that it's 800 degrees Fahrenheit. So their stories are obviously bogus. They were simply uh, just trying to get their 15 minutes of fame. And unfortunately, some of their uh, patter had to do with the aliens saying that you need to get rid of nukes. So you've got this odd situation where uh, there are these very legitimate documented cases going on involving military sites involving nuclear weapons, but you've also got a larger cultural context where people are making these claims, some of which may be valid, some of which may be bogus as hell, and that's my opinion. Do you um, have any particular viewpoint with regard to any specific claims that might be genuine? I don't think I'm familiar enough with report, you know, just things I read over the years and, you know, had to evaluate on my own as to whether I thought it was credible or not, but I can't, you know, it's nothing that I pursue or search on the internet on an ongoing basis. So, no, I can't actually specifically mention a case where that, that was mentioned that I would consider credible. Um, I do know that a number of these people who claim to have been abducted or had have communication with aliens are also being given the message that humans are fouling our own nest. We are ruining our planet. We are ruining our environment. And so there's also this mention of, uh, you know, this sub-theme or this alternate theme of not nuclear weapons, but just the fact that we're screwing up Earth's environment and uh, we need to think about it. There is this case uh, that John Mack mentioned. Uh, I've seen uh, pieces on TV where a number of school children, I think it was in Zimbabwe in Africa, uh, were out playing in the playground, and they all came in and ran in and told their teachers that a UFO had landed, and this little alien got out and was communicating with them telepathically. Well, the, the teachers took all the kids into separate rooms and had them write down their story, and, uh, you know, they matched up pretty well, and the kids were genuinely scared and excited, and but the, the message, the telepathic message was, in effect, um, you know, protect animals, protect rivers, protect trees. So it was, again, this kind of environmental uh, message to these kids. Now, all I know is that uh, John Mack from, from Harvard University, who did investigate UFO abductions for a number of years before he passed away, was of the opinion that there was something legitimate going on that was not, you know, fraudulent and not psychotic. These people weren't crazy. They weren't lying. They were having these contacts with non-human entities. And he apparently was pretty impressed with this case in Zimbabwe. So I, I just offer that as, as a sure. corollary. Sure. A, a couple of things are wor worthy of mention, though. One, of course, being that at this point, 
it's sort of almost laughable to think that humans would need a non-human species to tell us that we were endangering our ecosystem. It's about as obvious as a two-by-four in the face. I agree. Um, so, you know, in a sense, that is sort of, a, I don't know, it seems almost a little uh, gratuitous. Now, at the same time, something that you said before, which uh, in, in considering this topic, I've, I've thought is probably more likely, that if, if there is a message being sent, it really is not about the human species specifically, but perhaps the notion that this planet is a very valuable genetic bank slash genetic storehouse and uh, maybe for more than one species, maybe uh, they don't want us to ruin this, not for the effect it would have on, on us, but really just not to screw up the resource for everybody. I wouldn't discount that as a theory. Yeah. Again, you know, we're squarely in the, the realm of speculation here. Um, that's why I try to clearly differentiate in my lectures and in my book, uh, again, the nuts and bolts data, what are the reports, what are the people who are on site saying, and then later on stepping back and taking a look at what this might add up to one way or the other and right. fairly you know, looking at all the possibilities rather than just immediately uh, picking out one hypothesis and sticking with it, just looking at all the sure. options. You clearly, I mean, there clearly are in the abduction report database many, many cases uh, where apparently something genetic, some type of experimentation or harvesting of genetic material is allegedly taking place according to the abductees. And mm -hmm. again, I have no uh, way of being able to evaluate, evaluate that myself except to say that I... Uh, I'm familiar with enough cases to know that this, this seems to be a legitimate part of what's going on. Sure. So again, we get back to, um, you know, if based on just the sighting reports of human entities or humanoid entities, not the abduction reports where you're getting a variety of descriptions of morphology, facial features, skin coloring and height and so on, I think we clearly are dealing with a number of races, not one, and if indeed that is the case, uh, it's quite probable there are multiple agendas, and some of those agendas, some of those races' agendas may well indeed involve uh, a genetic aspect. Or, of course, we're dealing with something completely, absolutely different than anything we've been talking about, where the nuclear age, as it were, created some sort of an interdimensional rift facilitating or maybe even screwing up the plans of entry of interdimensional beings into our dimensional construct, perhaps the morphology of these beings is really more of a product of them adapting to our cultural expectations and doing this in a fluid fashion. And then to round out all that, maybe the uh, message is not so much about don't detonate nuclear weapons, you'll destroy yourselves or you'll destroy the environment. Maybe it's more along the lines of don't detonate nuclear weapons. It creates quantum ripples throughout the space-time continuum that perhaps have repercussions in an alternate dimensional construct that coexists with ours that are unhealthy for them. I mean... I was just going to say I do not disagree with that hypothesis. In fact, since you have opened that can of worms, I will go ahead and charge ahead here. I've devoted a whole chapter in my book to theories on warp drive and hyperspace drive, and I have actually been in touch with a number of warp and hyperdrive theorists around the country and around the world. 
uh, some in Brazil, some in Portugal, uh, some in uh, England who have, these are scientists, uh, physicists, or mathematicians who have now published papers, multiple papers, in peer-reviewed scientific journals discussing the concept of hyperspace or hyperdrive spacecraft based on the reality of hyperspace. Hyperspace basically is uh, shorthand for higher dimensional space. It's been postulated by physicists around the world for the last 20 years. Michio Kaku, uh, if someone wants to Google this, K-A-K-U, Michio oh, we're, Kaku. We're familiar is, with him, absolutely. Okay, sure. He's one of the leading theorists. Basically what they're proposing is that the universe has what is called higher dimensional space in which our four-dimensional time-space continues is embedded and the theory is that based on the mathematics they thought based on these theories that are being published by these these scientists uh, if if hyperspace exists if you can get into it if you can leave our universe and get into hyperspace you can actually travel many times the speed of light and then you can drop back into our four dimensional space-time and you'll be much farther away in a much shorter period of time than if you traveled from point A to point B in our space. And again, in my book, I have this whole chapter devoted to these theories. I've sent it to these these persons that I were in contact with, asked them whether I have accurately represented what their theories are, and they've told me yes. And so I publish what their findings are or, or what they're what they're postulating actually. But there are people, you know, who are actually proposing building a hyper drive spaceship and trying to attempt to get into hyperspace and see if all of this is real. So this is not, you know, just new age crystal rubbers who are coming up with this stuff. These are people who are physicists and mathematicians uh, on a day-to-day basis, and this is what they're now postulating. Right, but but it also has to be mentioned that um, at this point it's all highly theoretical, and the potential of building anything resembling a hyperspace drive involves energy sources that we do not, not only do we not have, we don't even understand at this point. Uh, I, I agree with all of that, except for your last sentence. Uh, apparently, uh, warp drive, some of the warp drive models that are being proposed involve vast quantities of uh, dark energy or some matter in the universe that is postulated but not has not really been detected. But when you get into the hyperdrive theories, there's a variety of different approaches that are being proposed, uh, some of which, you know, again, we're probably years, decades, maybe centuries away from being able to pull this off as a, as a species. But there are a variety of approaches being proposed as I mentioned in my book, there's an engineer at Sandia Labs who is very interested in exploring one of these models that has been referenced in a peer-reviewed uh, paper. So this is not you know, entirely in the realm of pie in the sky. It's people beginning to seriously look at uh, practical ways to prove both the existence of hyperspace and being able to technologically maneuver it in it. But yeah, it's it's clearly theoretical from our standpoint. But the point is, after 100 years, of every scientist on Earth saying, Einstein says you can't reach a speed of light, therefore space aliens cannot come here because the distances are so vast. After a century of that mantra, you've got now peer-reviewed papers in countless journals by you know eminent people saying, you know, he had it right most of the way, but uh, there's some aspects to uh, Einsteinian physics that he didn't envision, and now we can get beyond that, and the universe might 
have this whole new architecture that we previously thought impossible or didn't even dream of. Well, which yeah. We In a world where UFO conventions are completely, utterly boring, come something new from a whole bunch of people who are trying to do something new. The Culture of Contact 2008 UFO Festival. Visuality. Stars David Bassett. David Biedney. Dr. William J. Burns. David Hatcher Childress. Patricia Gordon. Richard Dolan. Bud Hopkins. Ellen Brognow. Michael Mannion. Melissa Reed. Jeff Ritzman. Giorgio Sucolos. Jeremy Faney. And Farrier Duzo. Special President. Presentations by Combustive Motor Corporation. Masahiro Kanata. And the world premiere of the silent but deadly truth solution of truth. For more information and to order tickets, please visit www.cultureofcontact.com. <laughs> Once again, that's www.cultureofcontact.com. Card subject to change. You could be screwed financially. Probably not, though. We're proceeding Look. at Warp 10 on the Paracast with Robert Hastings, author of UFOs and Nukes, Extraordinary Encounters at Nuclear Weapons Sites. We're talking now about possible propulsion systems, the possibility of warp travel. And David, you were about to say? Well, I mean, people speak about Einstein with a certain reverence, which is certainly uh, appropriate. At the same time, Einstein was not the last physicist who ever had an original idea. I think one of the things that certainly we know from things like electronics is that when things appear to be A, B, and C, it sometimes is true that if you change the framework of the observation, D, E, F become available. So one of the things we have to remember is that when we talk about physics, um, when we talk about nuclear physics, when we talk about things like the cutting-edge technologies and, and, and areas of physics, quantum theory, quantum mechanics, string theory, the M-brain, when we talk about all of these things, what we have to realize, and, and Robert, you brought up dark matter, Let's, let's keep in mind that we do not know what dark matter is. We do not know what dark energy is. All that we have are theories that say that these things must exist for our existing models of the universe to hold true. Correct. Those are, those are our existing models, which basically are simply not very complete. So one of the things that we've talked about on the Paracast uh, and that we bring up all the time is that when you have a, a, a technological species, a technologically capable species that is able to, let's say, move from one part of a galaxy to another, any kind of technology that is likely to create that possibility is going to mean that, by definition, really, have an interdimensional transport medium. It's the only Correct. way you can really get around this. So that's I think it's really important. And, and by the way, um, we're taping this on... Uh, Tuesday, and tomorrow we are actually going to be talking to Phil Imbrogno about his most recent book dealing with this interdimensional aspect, which um, apparently a lot of people who study this topic, people like uh, Jacques Vallée and uh, uh, Alan Hynek, later on as they 
mull through all the possibilities, many of these guys end up coming to the conclusion that this is not as straightforward as it appears, that the idea that we're talking about space aliens, and by the way, Robert, I mean, when you were on that the latest uh, episode of Larry King where you had on Jacobs and you had on Salas, I mean, I, I just cringe when I hear Larry King say, "Whoa, do you think they're aliens?" You know, it's such simplistic thinking, and you know, I, I could see your frustration. It was really fun to watch uh, Jacobs give Bill Nye a hard time. <laughs> we were all I mean, enjoying that. Well, yeah, I mean, it was just terrible. And, and by the way, just to, to take it back to the that issue for a moment, I'm just curious about something. When Bill Nye brought up, and I, I was ready to absolutely smash the screen in front of me when he did this, when he brought up this idea that, oh, maybe the topside soldiers were drinking, right. I could see the look in Solace's face. And, uh, you know, the idea that you have guys at a nuclear missile facility on the job and somehow they're drinking the night away, I mean, that was about as far from science as one could get. Um, exactly. Uh, terrible. You know, I'm going to use your comments to segue into a topic I'd like to address. Uh, sure. You mentioned Bob Jacobs. Bob Jacobs was a former photographic officer for the Air Force. He set up this telescope in Big Sur, California, that filmed a number of missile launches mm-hmm. at Vandenberg Air Force Base in the early 60s. And as many of your listeners know, uh, in 1982, in the early 80s, he came forward and said, uh, one of those films of these launches, uh, a film of a missile test launch, a dummy nuclear warhead being tested, uh, when we analyzed the film, we found that a disc-shaped object came in out of camera frame, approached the warhead, which was traveling several thousand miles per hour, circled it, and as it circled it, fired four beams of light toward it, whereupon the warhead began tumbling into the ocean. Now, immediately, all the skeptics and the debunkers jumped on this and said, Bull, that never happened, that's impossible, this man's a liar. Well, in short order, the photo interpretation officer at Vandenberg Air Force Base, uh, a retired major named Florenz Mansman, came forward and supported Jacobs' story. I have a number of private letters, correspondence between Jacobs and Mansman from the early 80s, in which 20 years later, after the fact, they're describing this incident in great detail and are just marveling. They're just stunned 20 years later that this actually happened and was captured on film. Major Mansman, who was actually the person who used a magnifying glass and other techniques to uh, interpret the image, to analyze the image on the film, has said point blank, and I devote a whole chapter in my book to this, uh, there's an article on my website called The Big Sur Case. He said that what they saw on film was a disc-shaped object with a dome. He said that as the object circled the warhead, it uh, sent out these four beams of light. Uh, Jacobs has told me they looked more like lightning bolts, but not quite. Uh, they weren't like laser beams, but they were bolts of light coming from the UFO to the warhead. Manslin confirms all this in writing. And, well, Jacobs basically summarized as best he could, uh, trying to, you know, tell his story on Larry King. He summarized all of this. What I would like to 
to address here is that uh, there's another aspect of the story that most people don't know. In 1994, or it may have been the winter of 93, uh, Skeptical Inquirer magazine, which is the house magazine of PSYCOP. PSYCOP is the Committee for the Scientific Investigation of Claims of the Paranormal. They may cha now change their name to CSI, uh, Committee for Skeptical Investigation. In any case, they're a debunking group. They publish this, this article, this magazine called Skeptical Inquirer. Some of the lead psychopters were Philip Class, who's now deceased, James Oberg, James McGahey, all these people who say that UFOs don't exist, there is no UFO cover-up, and so on and so forth. Well, in 1993, Skeptical Inquirer published an article by Kingston George, who worked with Bob Jacobs on this photographic project at Vandenberg in the 60s where they were filming these launches. Kingston George basically said Bob Jacobs is a nut. Uh, he's making weird claims, quote unquote. This was actually, you know, nothing involved with a UFO. Now, what I was able to determine, and I mentioned in my book, is that the skeptical inquirer editor is a man named Kendrick Frazier. Well, if you look at Skeptical Inquirer magazine masthead, where on the first page they talk about who's involved with the publication of the magazine, Kendrick Frazier is just mentioned as, is noted as being a scientific writer, or a science writer, I believe the exact term is, which he is because he's written various scientific books. However, what that masthead doesn't tell the reader or anyone else is that Kendrick Frazier, from the early 80s until about two years ago, was working as a public relations specialist at Sandia National Laboratories here in my hometown of Albuquerque. In other words, the article that was published in Skeptical Inquirer saying that Big Sur didn't happen, there was no UFO involved, it was all a bunch of bull, was published by a man who was at that time working as a public relations specialist for one of the leading nuclear weapons labs in the United States. Mm. And you, you, yeah, what a shock. Mm. You, That's you, fascinating. You will have to look high and low to find any reference online to Kendrick Fraser being a PR guy working for Sandia Labs. This past Monday, I did a, two weeks ago, I did an, an interview with the Albuquerque Journal here, presented all this data, declassified government documents. Uh, I gave the reporter a number of letters between Jacobs and Mansman. You know, just laid out the Big Sur case. Uh, they knew I had been on Larry King, so they were going to follow up on that. So I gave this man, this reporter, who's named John Fleck, all of this detailed, documented data involving the Big Sur incident. Well, they published the article and basically did a hatchet job on me. After I was interviewed, uh, Kendrick Frazier, the same Kendrick Frazier who was a skeptical inquirer editor, is to this day, even though he's retired from Sandia Labs, spoke with the reporter, gave him Kingston George's name. So Kingston George basically gave his BS story to the reporter, and the reporter, John Fleck, swallowed it hook, line, and sinker. So in this article on my book, they're basically saying that I'm full of it, and here's why, because Kendrick Frazier and James Oberg and Kingston George say that none of this happened, it's not real, and Hastings has no idea what he's talking about. What you have here is the PSYCOP guys, now the CSI guys, getting in there and influencing some gullible, uninformed reporter who swallowed their story hook, line, and sinker. So it's so, an ongoing battle between the facts and the disinformation that's being spread by the PSYCOP guys. What's their gain in this, Robert? I mean, you know, I, okay, so we have that connection between the editor-in-chief and, and Sandia National Labs, but this is about more than just that. 
you have these guys, and let's just qualify something here, okay? The term skeptic has gotten a bad rap in all of this, and the idea of skeptical thought has taken a beating over this. We're not talking about skeptical thought here. We're talking about... Okay, we're talking about fundamentalism. That's really, I think, a, a very important point. And we've made that point on the Paracast before. So what is it with these guys? I, you know, I, I saw Magaha on a Larry King episode, and the man was laughable. He really was laughable. It, it was just like, what is he doing? Kind of like watching Bill Nye on with you guys on King uh, make a complete ass of himself. So what's the story here? What do you think's well, going on here? Again, and I hate to sound like I'm plugging the book every five minutes, but again, I devote a whole chapter in my book to the difference between skeptics and debunkers. Skeptics are a valid part of the equation, people who have valid questions thoughtfully presented about UFOs and the claims that are made about them. But there's another category of, quote, skeptics, that's how they build themselves, which are really debunkers. They have their mind made up without listening to the facts, that this is all bunk and it needs to be stamped out before it infects rational people. And having spoken at over 500 colleges and universities since 1981, I have routinely been involved in verbal knockdown dragouts with uh, professors of physics and astronomy and, and psychology who know zero about UFOs and yet stand up at, and during the question and answer session after my lecture and tell the audience why I'm full of it and how they as scientists know that UFOs can't possibly exist. Long story short, I eventually ask a series of questions which proves to the audience that these guys have no idea what they're talking about and they usually get hooted out of <laughs> out of the, the lecture hall. You know, I'm going to uh, ask you that, I want because you raised that question. Brain Tonic, the smart antidote to head fog, the world's first organic botanical-based caffeine-free think drink designed for mental focus and clarity. Tastes great, super safe, with no caffeine fresh, just great fuel for your cranium. No chemical preservatives, no sugar, no fake anything. Check it out at www.maxsales.com slash tonic. That's spelled with a T-O-N-I-Q. That's www.maxsales.com slash tonic. Again, the spelling T-O-N-I-Q. Check it out today. By the way, we're talking to Robert Hastings on the Paracast. And what are the questions that are designed to completely destroy the logic and the argument from the skeptics? What kind of questions do you ask? Oh, I very simply ask them what they have personally engaged in in terms of research into the UFO phenomenon. Well, there's this big, long pause because they have not. They have read articles in Skeptical Inquirer or have read National Enquirer silly articles as they check out of the supermarkets and see these crazy stories that the National Enquirer and all of those other papers publish. And between what they read in Skeptical Enquirer and what they see checking out from the supermarket in National Enquirer, they've decided this is all bull. 
They've not investigated the topic. They've not interviewed witnesses. They've not reviewed documents. The psychologists have no idea that leading physicists around the world are now proposing faster than light travel as a reality. So psychologists are trying to address a subject that they have no knowledge of, even lots of physicists who teach at universities. You know, with all due respect to their, their own job, they're teaching basic physics or even theoretical physics. Until very recently, uh, very few of scientific people in academia were aware of these cutting-edge theories about higher dimensional space and so on. I am now finally, after 27 years on the lecture circuit, starting to find the younger physicists in the audiences are a little more hip and a little more aware to what's going on and that there's this revolutionary change in thought that's occurring. And so I don't get this crap anymore from those guys, at least, about, you know, you can't possibly travel the speed of light and therefore aliens can't be coming from other worlds. We can't travel um, the speed of sound either. Ask scientists back in, what, how many years ago? Exactly. 47 was interesting year, but, yeah, that was when Chuck Yeager broke the sound barrier. There is a, a man named Dr. Bernard. Bernard Haish, H-A-I-S-C-H. Yeah, we, we've and, had him on the show. We've had uh, we've, uh, his website, great episode. Yeah. His website, ufoskeptic.org, is what a skeptical website should be. I have corresponded with him. I respect his work and his approach. But he's a true skeptic, and he talks about UFOs, you know, what's known, what isn't known, what is speculated about but not yet proven, and so on. But he's certainly not a debunker. The debunkers hate him because he's a reasonable, skeptical voice on this subject. I actually devote a slide in my slideshow to his website and his work to try to get skeptical people on UFOs interested in what a true skeptic is and should be. Robert, here's the problem with that. I mean, we, we had Bernie on the show. Great guy. One of our better episodes. Beforehand, he only agreed to come on the show if we did not talk about the UFO topic. He won't talk about that topic anymore. That was really fascinating. He wanted to talk about his book, The God Theory. And, and ultimately, towards the end of the episode, we sort of started to steer him in the direction of UFOs. But you see, the problem being, people who are reasonable about this topic ultimately do get bashed from both sides. And here at the Paracast, we kind of ride that very exact position where we get bashed by the doe-eyed believers and we get bashed by the debunkers. Correct. So in a very polarized society, it's almost impossible to have a centrist discussion because of the fact that people are essentially sold on taking a polar position. You know, everything in our society is you're left, you're right, you're conservative, you're liberal, you're Republican, you're Democrat. The minute you break out of those boxes, it's almost as if they get confused. It's almost as if they don't have any subtlety to their thinking. So when we talk about UFOs, you know, what do we get? Okay, we get the, okay, there's space brothers here to help us in the left right. column. In the right column, we have, they're here to make us into hamburgers. Right. And, and there's like nothing in the middle. So that's the well, I problem trust, I think we have. I trust you can tell from the tone of my comments that I'm somewhere in the middle. I mean, I'm looking at all this, the whole spectrum. I'm aware of the silliness. I'm aware of the blind rejection. I'm aware of, you know, a whole range of aspects to the question of UFOs. And I mm -hmm. think, you know, you, I can only do so much in a, in a telephone conversation, but in the book, I very, very carefully 
differentiate between what's known and what is only speculated about, what we have evidence for, but what we don't have evidence for, the validity of true skeptical input on the question as opposed to the debunkers. I cover all these things subtly and in great detail, you know, to try to make it a more complex discussion so it's not this black, white, you know, left, right, up down kind of kind of discussion so I, I know exactly where you're coming from regarding Bernie Hayes I will simply tell you and I hope I'm not speaking out of school here but after the Larry King show there were some emails between myself and the producers and Bob Salas and the producers about the need for better skeptics you know so mm -hmm. if they're gonna have a, a skeptic on the show or two they need to have people who know what they're talking about and have a more skeptical feel the producers basically came back and told Bob Salas and I okay you know come up with a short list of people you can recommend. Well, I was in touch with Bernie Hayes, explained the situation to him, and asked him whether he would be willing to appear on Larry King in, you know, the next time I'm on or, or there's a UFO panel. And he basically said, uh, I don't want to have to debate the debunkers. And I said, the idea is to replace the debunkers with credible skeptics such as yourself. And he said, well, go ahead to float the trial balloon and see. It hasn't happened yet, but I'm hoping and I'm going to well, strongly recommend that right. Bernie Hayes goes on Larry King. It, it won't happen. I can tell you that. I'm, I'm being psychic right now. It won't happen. Because Larry King is interested in basically dog fights. He wants dog fights. He wants yeah. blood. He wants teeth. He wants fangs. He wants b b dog fights. That, that is what that show is about. It's about car crashes. Not, not about actually having reasonable discussion. And it's real simple. You've got a show where the show ID coming in from commercial is a UFO uh, hovering over cows. The cows went, moo. I mean, right. they're not interested in serious discussion. I, by the way, I think it is valuable it, to have Larry King covering this topic in that, A, it does expose the, the subject to a mainstream primetime audience. That's fine. At this point, B, it allows the debunkers to go make asses of themselves. I think Bill Nye... Uh, showed his true colors. I think Seth Shostak is another one who gets up and says stuff that essentially is not meant to in any way educate or inform. It's basically distractions. I remember that was the one episode where Seth Shostak put a little alien bobblehead character on and, right. and Stan Friedman said, what the hell is that? You know, what are you doing? This is your answer to this topic and it's like what we, I mean, and I don't want to take this show in a political direction, but Whenever bad things are being done, bad people come out with really weird little distractions. We saw this in the lead-up to the Iraqi misadventure. We saw this. I mean, and those of us who remember what really went down when we were taken into you know, an immoral war, we saw the distractions. Well, look, look at these tubes. This is, nu this is nuclear weapon stuff. This is WMDs. You know, and where is Colin Powell these days? I don't know. Who's seen him? I don't know. Maybe he's having lunch with, with Rumsfeld. Who the hell knows? Meanwhile, you've got Shostak and Nye not engaging in any kind of realistic conversation about this or debate. They're basically playing, you know, Nye comes up with the, oh, well, somebody here says they were drinking. Right. So the, the point of this is that as much as I would love to see Bernie Hayes go on Larry King and take the position of skeptic for his producers, that wouldn't be good television. So it won't happen. I, I 
understand your point of view, and you may be 100% correct. However, I wish I was wrong. I wish I was wrong. Let me let me state that. I don't want to be right about that. Uh, I will simply say that my one and only experience where I was invited on the program, I was allowed without any restrictions to pick the to handpick the people I wanted to come on with me. And when I did uh, with the same producer discussed the possibility of having better informed people, she immediately responded, you know, okay, we're, we're listening, you know, and we right. explained to her, you know, those people, you know, it's like one show a day, you're focused on one show, then you move on to the next one in yesterday's history. They don't really have a sense of the arguments involved, uh, the personalities involved, uh, the kind of subterfuge that's going on. They don't know about Psychop's uh, hidden face. I didn't even mention Jim Oberg's history working with classified nuclear weapons projects at, in New Mexico. I mentioned that in my book. So the Larry King producers don't have the time or the interest, frankly, to, right, to right. really focus on these particular subjects. But to their credit, you know, they've given me so far one time free reign in terms of what I proposed and how it should be presented and so on. And uh, I have, there are behind the scenes discussions to get Bernie Hayes and other people like him on who can intelligently present a skeptic's point of view. Uh, whether, whether that occurs or not remains to be seen. I agree. Fate Magazine is proud to be celebrating its 60th anniversary and its 700th issue. That's 60 years of bringing you true reports of the strange and unknown. Keep up with the latest on angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, life after death, and much, much more. It's bigger and better than ever. Subscribe now by calling 1-800-728-2730 or online at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. We're talking to Robert Hastings, author of UFO and Nukes, Extraordinary Encounters at Nuclear Weapons Sites. It's available from his site, ufohastings.com, or click on his name at the paracast.com website to learn more. So we hope things are going to go in a good way here in terms of Larry King. Although, remember, when a show is there for the entertainment value, it's hard to know how they're going to react. But let's look further at where we are now and where we are in the future. Now that you have this body of research that you've put together, where are you taking it? now or perhaps in the near future in terms of trying to burge it with other information, et cetera, et cetera? Well, one of my hopes was that uh, the publication of this book and the publicity surrounding it would uh, result in additional sources coming forward, uh, other former and retired Air Force personnel and other military veterans who have stories to tell, who uh, didn't either know to, to tell them to or were afraid to tell them, who might now be prompted to come forward and add their testimony to the body of, of information. It's been a month since Larry King. That has not yet materialized, I have to, to say. I think in time, as the book gets wider circulation and additional publicity nationwide and internationally, there will be those people coming forward. So I'm hoping to fill in some of the gaps. I have always acknowledged that even after 35 years, 
I only have approximately 100 sources who I consider credible who have detailed stories to tell. You know, it's a question of <laughs> locating them, uh, finding out their backgrounds, uh, confirming that they were indeed at those Air Force bases at the time and were in the squadrons and, you know, not some BS artist trying to muddy the waters. So that takes time, getting them to come on board and talk about what they know. Sometimes they're very eager to share this, and they believe the American public has the right to know the facts. Other times, as I mentioned with Chet Lytle, it takes a better part of a decade to get them to go on the record. So that's very time-consuming. I would hope also now that the book is getting some international exposure. A couple of my articles as we speak are being translated into Polish and into Portuguese uh, down in Brazil where there are lots of UFO sightings. I'm hoping that when those stories get published in Poland and Brazil and elsewhere around the country, Spain, uh, that uh, people will come forward and talk about incidents involving nuclear weapons or nuclear power plants around the world. So that's kind of what I'm hoping will materialize that I would crystallize into uh, my next publication. Okay, having one case, a hundred cases, a thousand cases, all demonstrating that UFOs are seen over nuclear weapons bases or installations, that they occasionally interfere with the weapon systems themselves. What do we do with that information? What's the step after that? Ultimately, I mean, one would hope that the weight of the evidence would cause either the media or someone within the power base to, you know, take a fresh look at coming clean and, and acknowledging all of this. I, I hope to organize a press conference at the National Press Club. Bob Salas has already spoken at two such conferences about the nuclear weapons UFO connection, and I am hoping to have maybe a dozen or two dozen of my sources appear at the National Press Club to get the attention of the power elite. But just as was the case with uh, the two prior appearances by Bob Salas to try to promote this subject, you know, if, if somebody, if the Washington Post and the New York Times just flat out want to ignore this or make fun of this testimony, you know, there's not a whole hell of a lot I can do about that. If the CIA and the NSA and uh, the whoever's in the White House, you know, want to reject all of this and just ignore it and pretend it's not being spoken about, then you and I and the other people who are trying to get this out in the open. All we can do is keep pushing. The guys in the power have most of the cards, and, you know, they're just... They're holding them real close to their vest, and I just really don't know other than promoting the information and spreading the word, as I call it, in the media and just word of mouth in college lectures. That's about as far as I, as a single individual, can take it. You know, I've been hearing stories since 1977 that this is the year that the truth is going to come out. Well, we're still waiting, aren't we? So I don't sit and look toward the horizon and go, you know, if we only do this or we only do that, that'll be the straw that breaks the camel's back. I don't honestly know what the catalyst will be that will cause all of this to finally be out in the light. Uh, I just know that I as an individual and my sources have the ability to talk about what we know and that's probably the extent of our contribution. Robert, we had something very interesting happen on the Paracast last week. We had on Nick Pope and uh, we were asking questions and I asked him about his thoughts regarding or what did he know regarding UFOs and nuclear facilities in the UK and uh, you could hear how fast he clammed up and said, no comment. I can't talk about that. 
Right. So I, I think you can talk a little bit more about that topic. Than, I can. Than Actually, again, uh, I sound like a broken record, but there is a chapter in my book on the Bentwaters case. And many mm-hmm. of your listeners will know that, well, first of all, what Bentwaters is, uh, it's a very almost a household word. Uh, next to Roswell, the Bentwaters right. incidents received more attention in the media than any other case in the last 20 years. But in addition to the famous, highly covered incidents where the objects landed in the woods and the, the security police went out and, and, you know, were basically literally touching them on one occasion. In addition to that aspect of the Bentwaters case, uh, the Bentwaters nuclear weapons storage area was also visited by UFOs that week on more than one occasion. And I have interviewed uh, probably six or seven of the security police who were at the weapons storage area, some of whom said uh, the objects were right there. One of them, I always ask witnesses to, to say, you know, if you held out a, do- a dime at arm's length, would the UFO have been larger or smaller than that? And I asked one of these security guards, Charlie Waters, who was at the weapons storage area that week, I said, you know, what you describe as seeing a UFO, was it larger or smaller than a dime held at arm's length? And he kind of <laughs> snorted and said, if you held out a cantaloupe at arm's length, that's how big it was. That's how close it was. But anyway, Colonel Halt, uh, the deputy base commander who has been the most vocal, the highest ranking, certainly a witness to the UFO activity at Bentwaters back in December of 80, had mentioned on a couple of occasions that he heard radio chatter from people in the area of the weapons storage area saying that beams of light were coming down into the weapons storage area from one of the UFOs. And uh, none of the people that I've uh, located and interviewed saw the beams of light, but Charlie Waters said that the object he saw, which was circular, a bright spinning light, he said he saw a rod, what he took to be a rod extending beneath the UFO down toward the ground, as if it might have been, you know, perhaps the device that from which these beams of light that were reported emanated. Now, that's speculative, but he did report this round spherical object with this rod sticking down beneath it. In any case, some of the people that I was directed to who who supposedly had information about those incidents, uh, when I contacted them, they were very curt with me and said, you know, that's not anything I'm going to talk to you or anyone else about. Mm. But I did I did find these, you know, half dozen or so that will describe, have described in my book, the sightings of UFOs at the Batwaters Weapons Storage Area. So that was a very sensitive part of the overall series of events that went on that week. In my opinion, based in the context of my other research and all of these other reports at weapons storage areas at, at various bases, that I described. One of the main reasons the UFO, if not the main reason the UFOs were at Bentwaters that week had to do with that, that large nuclear weapons storage area. I will further mention that I have successfully gotten to go on the record after 20, what, eight years, 28 years, two air traffic controllers who were in the Bentwaters Tower on one night that week who described tracking an object on radar, they knew this was going on. They've never talked to anybody about it. I published their testimony for the first time. They, they tracked an object traveling 120 miles in about 8 to 10 seconds. And uh, one of the controllers actually out the window of the air traffic control tower, uh, his name's Ike Barker, he said that he saw a basketball-shaped object, orange in color, with small, uh, brighter color shapes around its middle. He didn't know if they were lights or portholes or whatever. But at the same time, they were tracking this object on radar covering 120 miles in a matter of a few seconds. 
they actually saw it hover for a few seconds. He did. The other controller was apparently looking in a different direction. It hovered there for a few seconds and then raced away, and that was part of what was going on at Bentwaters that week. So we, for the first time, have professional air traffic controllers saying they tracked on radar one of the UFOs. Hmm. So it, it, was, it wasn't a returning Russian satellite, as James Oberg said. It wasn't a you know a series of meteors. If you look at the testimony of these air traffic controllers and the guards of the weapons storage area, you had physical objects, one of them being tracked on a radar, maneuvering around the base's weapons storage area and other locations on the base. So, <laughs> yes. Okay, now, Robert, there's something that I've been meaning to ask you during the whole show. Um, I know, I think it was Eugene that brought up Israel briefly. It's, I won't say commonly known, but it's pretty well well believed that Israel does indeed have nuclear abilities. I, Correct. Uh, yeah, I, I think we all know that at this point, even though they don't publicly announce it. Do we know of any reports of UFOs being seen in and around nuclear facilities in Israel, in a place where, where you have a very high potential for there to be use of nuclear weapons? I am personally unaware of reports linking the the facility uh, out in the, I believe it's in the Negev Desert in Israel. Mm-hmm. can't remember the name of the exact facility, but yes, it's common knowledge. Uh, I even recall seeing some declassified CIA information several years ago about uh, how the, they believe the Israelis actually stole fissile material from a plant in Pennsylvania, I think it was, and you know yeah. that was the genesis of their program. So it's very well established, as are sighting reports in, in Israel in general. There have been a number of uh, reports of humanoids next to UFOs that have been reported in Israel, but no. Really? In uh, Israel? Yes. I mean, I'm simply relaying what I've seen in various documentaries on TV as well as reports on the internet but yeah if you were to google it you would find there have been a series of reports there was one incident uh, I think in the space of a single night four separate women independently reported seeing a humanoid figure near their house peering in the window or whatever who they alleged engaged in something resembling telepathic communication and so on so there are those reports but as far as something similar to what's being reported here where an object is observed directly above the nuclear weapons facility out in the Negev desert. If those reports exist, I'm unaware of them. By the way, that is the Negev Nuclear Research Center. Okay. So, so that's the actual name of it. Yeah. Okay. And, and it was actually uh, created back in the late 50s, early 60s. It's been there for quite a while, apparently. Right. I, I have to look into those uh, Israeli reports of humanoid senior ships. I hadn't heard of those. Quite fascinating. They're out there. Again, I can't vouch for the validity of them, but the reports that I've read and seen seem to be credible. I mean, these are, again, people who had no interest in UFOs who you know, are being subjected presumably to the ridicule or at least the skepticism of their neighbors and friends, and yet they're willing to go on the record about seeing these figures and so on. So those are the reports are out in the public domain. Do you at this point continue to get reports, Robert, from people who have worked in nuclear facilities in the States or affiliated with them coming forward and giving you information? Is that an ongoing thing? It is. And uh, part of it's proactive on my part. I'm continuing to contact persons who I am told by some of my sources that would have knowledge about this or that case. Uh, two interesting confirmations of the Malmstrom shutdowns developed after my book was published. Two of the uh, people involved in bringing the missiles back online at Echo Flight, one of them at Echo Flight, the other at Oscar, Oscar Flight, uh, have talked about you know being out there 
trying to bring up the missiles and when they got back to the launch control facility finding that the place was just crammed with people this was the echo flight incident uh, officers that had been flown in from off at Air Force Base which was strategic air command headquarters this one one uh, missile maintenance technician said they'd been out in the field so long they were dead tired they got back to the launch control facility and there was just wall-to-wall brass you know officers he said there wasn't even a place to lay down and sleep but that you know they were being told it was common discussion uh, among the people he was in touch with that UFOs had caused the shutdowns two of those sources independently developed well after the book was at the printers so I didn't have a chance to include their stories but they'll they'll definitely be publicized in future publications so it's ongoing as I said I was hoping for a bump an upsurge in people contacting me after Larry King and that as of now has not happened yet there are times where months and months can go by and I don't get any leads and then suddenly I get two or three within the space of a month people who read something I've written online and I don't just immediately accept every report that report that comes my way of course I vet the witnesses I require that they provide service records corroborating their their military background. You know, I interview them at length. I tape the interviews. And so the people who have ended up in my book, in my view, are vetted and quite credible. And in some cases, there are multiple witnesses, you know, describing the same event. But there are other cases over the years that either just didn't have enough meat to them or I had suspicions about the alleged witnesses and so on. And, uh, you know, those fall by the wayside. Uh, You know, we don't have much time left, but I wanted to ask you this key question. Do you ever think someone in the government who doesn't want this information to get out may be on one or more occasions trying to mislead you with fake info? That's in the realm of possibility, and I've been asked that before. But again, uh, the cases that I'm promoting and publicizing, you know, I've very carefully vetted these witnesses. And, you know, uh, I'm pretty confident with the ones that I publicize. Uh, either there are corroborating witnesses or other indications that what they're saying is is correct and accurate. So I, I you know, I don't read minds, um, and so it's possible that somebody may have pulled a fast one on me. Uh, I'm unaware of that having happened. No one's yet come public and said, gotcha. You know, if that happens, it happens. But the bulk of my witnesses, I would say 100% of the ones that I've published, are people that I'm extremely confident about their credibility and and the reliability of their testimony. Here's a kind of on-the-spot question for you, Robert, and uh, you uh, you can answer this with a no comment if you like. Is there someone who came to you who told you a story, maybe in confidence, maybe not, that you felt was just a little too alarming, too weird, that you didn't cover in your book that has haunted you? Um, no. I mean, I'm sticking to the nuts and bolts cases. And mm-hmm. if if I'm confident that the witness is on the level, um, I don't censor what they're saying. Some of them have provided technical information about missile systems that I'm not publishing, which I don't think is a good idea. Um, right. But as far as the gist of their UFO-related testimony, no, I don't censor their testimony. There is one case I mentioned in my book that may or may not have to do with a Cuban missile crisis. Uh, there was a witness at a base, Loring Air Force Base in Maine, who describes a very bizarre incident. I have talked to this gentleman for close to two years now, on and off. I'm quite confident he's credible, but the story he tells is amazing. I don't go into great detail in my book, and I won't hear because uh, I just don't want to have bogus witnesses coming out of the woodwork and saying, oh, yeah, I was there, I remember that. I just want to pr- provide in my book a taste of what was reported to me. It's in my book 
book in the chapter on the Cuban Missile Crisis, and if, if this source is correct, then something quite extraordinary happened during the Cuban Missile Crisis up at Boeing Air Force Base. Can you, can you give uh, us the gist of it? I'll repeat what I said in my book. Basically, the source uh, said that there was, well, he was a jet engine mechanic and uh, worked on B-52s, nuclear bombers, and said that one day there was this emergency situation where two B-52s on a tandem sortie, codenamed Chrome Dome, suddenly reported that they were returning to base early and there was an emergency situation. I have located and interviewed this gentleman's partner, jet engine partner, who corroborates that much of the story. But what the primary source says is that as these two B-52s were about to come in and land, he suddenly noticed that all, all up and down the flight line, people were pointing skyward. He himself looked up and he said he was stunned to see a large UFO. I'm going to leave it at that and not go into detail. And quite clearly above the flight line hovering as these two aircraft were returning. Then he says, and this is where it gets very uh, strange, not unprecedented in terms of other UFO reports, but he says that this object left and immediately thereafter it was like everybody, including himself, had this mental block where they knew what they had seen or he knew what he had seen. Mm. Absolutely no discussion of the object. He said not only that, there was no discussion of this emergency situation, these returning B-52s. And he said even if there hadn't been a UFO there, even if there had been, you know, no discussion of the UFO, he said that the entire squadron should have just been chattering, you know, about what the heck went on with the bombers, you know, why did two of them return and so on. He said it was like nothing had ever happened, no UFO, no emergency abort of the mission and the return of these bombers. Everyone just went about their business like nothing. Nothing had happened. Alien mind said, control. I mean, that's the clear implication that there was some sort of mass mind control phenomenon going on. Again, those kinds of reports are not frequent, but certainly have been reported in other types of uh, UFO sightings where people say, I felt as if my mind was being influenced. Uh, there are stories of people having this urge to go outside and look up, and when they do, they don't know why they're going outside or why they're looking up, but they see a UFO. Robert, we're just about out of time, but I think this is something that we could pursue in a second discussion, a further discussion about alien possible mental influence. Once again, Robert Hastings is author of the book UFOs and Nukes, Extraordinary Encounters at Nuclear Weapons Sites, and a lot more available from his site, ufohastings.com. Thanks for joining us on the PowerCast. My pleasure. Thank you, Robert. That was very fascinating. The PowerCast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney is a production of Making the Impossible Incorporated. Join us next week for a new adventure in the PowerCast.